Good evening. Thank you for listening to the KARP radio show. When you're looking for real truth, real talk radio, make sure you log on to KIRPRadioshow.com. Sunday nights live, 8 p.m. with your host. Tonight, Pudgy Miller is letting me host the show. I am Rocco Pisercia, Rocco P. I want to thank Pudgy for this opportunity to let me host his show, Keeping It Real with Pudgy. Tonight, I will try and keep it real. Thank you for listening. It is April 26th. We are live. Tonight, I'm going to talk about smartphones and give you a different perspective. Uh, a lot of people use smartphones. That's an understatement. When consumer technology is introduced, oftentimes we, and I am a consumer, will use it. We don't really think about it. We just start to use it, and we get used to it. We get really used to it. I mean, uh, I held out for a long time just getting a regular cell phone, and my, my thinking was I guess I was a little uh, I was a little stubborn, but I thought, yeah, I've been driving a while. Uh, I've never needed I've always driven without a cell phone. Now that they're around, you know, what's uh, what's the deal? What's the need? Is there really is there a rational basis to start using technology? Uh, do I need a mobile device to talk to someone because I have a phone that I could always use? doesn't have to be a mobile phone. But I broke down eventually uh, when, I was, uh, when I had to do some traveling. Broke down and got a cell phone. And once you, normally, once you uh, start to use the technology, in this case, the cell phone, you never go back. You, you never get rid of it. It becomes it becomes part of what you are doing, uh, you know, part of where you live. You could see the growth in the technology of uh, the Internet. The Internet, again, we'll talk a little bit about that later, but the Internet really, I, I hate to disappoint anyone if you're listening, if you think Al Gore invented the internet he did not it was essentially a military application the internet was developed among other things as a system uh, for the the military to communicate with one another in the event of war if uh, everything else went down so it was a military application obviously now it has you know it's it's again part of our life i can't think now about for example not communicating on the internet uh, not using email, not paying bills online. I mean, I stopped watching TV, so the information I get selectively, I'm reading articles online. I'm, I'm watching videos online. It'd be hard to think of going back to the old days, which, again, could could have a place uh, called the library if you wanted to do research. <laughs> and now even libraries... Yeah, a lot of libraries have gotten rid of their card systems. Everything is computerized. So then you still need to use some computer technology to even access hard copies of books and periodicals and articles. But getting back to the cell phone, if you think about how you use it, when you think about technology, we often think about the technology in terms of the science behind it. In other words, scientific technology people that are engineers will come up with things. They'll, they'll be design professionals. They'll, they'll design things. Okay, People will design consumer technology. But apart from the science of the engineering, 
Do you realize when we're talking about consumer technology, there's social engineering. Social engineers are involved. In other words, there are people, when technology is introduced, in this case I'm talking about the cell phone that then became the smartphone, and it's not going to end with the smartphone. Cats, that's really what the show is about. It's not going to end with the smartphone. But smartphone, again, is introduced, and you can't look at it as a static event. In other words, it isn't like the current level of smartphone will always be there. And you might say, well, duh, of course not. You always want to get you want to get the you want to get the one that's bigger and better. And uh, the applications keep on coming. They keep on coming. The social engineers have designed it that way, not merely to get you to spend more money to upgrade your phone on a regular basis. And, uh, it's, it's not just a matter of, of getting you to spend money. That's part of it. it. It goes beyond that. The idea of apps or applications never ending with the smartphone. Now, think about it. The smartphone is really its really a misnomer. We're talking about it's a microcomputer that we can use to communicate as a phone. So it's, it's a microcomputer. And what struck me as odd when smartphones started to become prevalent was uh, people watching video on a phone. And I thought, that, that's strange. I mean, why, e- even though you have know, a screen, you have, you have really, really nice resolution, and that's always getting better, why would you want to watch a video, especially a longer video? I mean, something like you know, a sporting event, you know, a football game, basketball game, or a movie. Why would you want to watch that on a small screen go elsewhere? And part of the deal is, part of the social engineering is it's designed so that you really you can't put it down. Uh, that's why the applications keep on coming out. Future, cell, future smartphones are going to have sensors, for example, and uh, you'll be able to hold them and not just get your pulse, but I mean, you get your blood pressure, things like that. So the application is going to keep on coming and coming and coming. So it's really it's a little it's a little computer. So think about how you might use a smartphone. Again, a lot of it is for social applications. Okay, people work on them, but again, people have always done work, you know, prior to the advent of smartphones, prior to the advent of cell phones. And I guess people people that disagree would say, Oh yes, it's great, embrace the technology, embrace it, use it. There's, there's, use it without any hesitation. And they'd say, uh, yeah, it makes, it makes, it makes work easier. I'm not sure. Okay, a lot of contractors back in the day, uh, you might remember Nextel, and they really liked that device. They let, they liked to push the talk, and that went by the wayside as smartphones advanced, be, because you could just do more than just talk, at a, at the click of a button. But there's always a way to do things. So you always have to ask, is the technology is it facilitating work? Is it making it easier or is it making it harder? And I'd argue in many cases it's making it harder for this reason. Whatever you're doing, whatever whatever profession you have, whatever wherever your livelihood is, think about the amount of time you spend each day on a smartphone. Is that amount of time that's devoted on a smartphone, is that related directly to your work? And if it is, does it enhance your work or take away? So much of so much of the time spent on smartphones is not related to productive uh, business 
uh, <laughs> business activity. <laughs> and yes, yeah, certain companies, obviously, now the technology is there. Any company, if if you're on a company computer, they could know exactly how long you're on every particular website. There, there's no hiding it. And of course, the NSA knows everything anyhow. But we're talking about in terms of work for this point, as far as your employer. Certain companies obviously will not let smartphones be used uh, in their premises for good reason, because they know if you're hired to do a certain job or a task or a function, whatever that is, if whatever you're hired to do, the smartphone isn't required, then obviously using the smartphone then uh, just uh, detracts from your ability to do what you are supposed to be doing. But you get back to the applications always coming out, the fact that they just keep on rolling out. There's more and more that you can do with the smartphone. Again, a smartphone, it's, it's a misnomer. It's really not a smartphone. It's really not a smartphone. It, it is a microcomputer that includes a phone function. Okay, let, let's get that straight. So you, you have to ask yourself that question, why, why are we addicted to having a computer on us at all time? Does it really enhance things? Does it make... Does it make our life simpler? Uh, how does it affect the, equal- the quality of our life? A lot of young people, young millennials and stuff, people in their 20s, they'll, they will get beaten up by uh, social critics and say, okay, yeah, they, they just can't put it down. But, I mean, it's just my observation. When I go out, it's not just, you know, 20-somethings. They can't put it down. I'll see, especially, you know, older couples and, uh, you know, they can't really talk to each other more than about five or six minutes without touching that thing. <laughs> uh, so the social engineering behind the smartphone is such that it's designed so that you can't put it down for a reason. It's supposed to be like a third hand. The smartphone the smartphone has really it's been described as a bridge or a transitional technology. That's what's been described as a bridge or a transitional technology. So you say, you know, what is you know, what is that technology? You know, what, where is it a bridge to? Okay, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. You've heard of the Google Glasses. Okay, the Google Glasses hasn't really caught on yet. Okay, not yet. Hasn't really, really caught on. But that's the idea, again. You know, they're, they're expensive. But that you could have the Internet. You know, you put the device, you wear the glasses on, you put the glasses on, then you've got the Internet there. Boom, you can walk around. And, you know, you got the Internet as you know, all the time. So some people would say, okay, you're at your desk, you're at a computer, uh, obviously you don't need them. Other people, again, would just find it more convenient for whatever bizarre reason to constantly have it in front of them. So that's, but that's a wearable technology. I mean, you're wearing that. The smartphone isn't a wearable technology. You put it down. Okay, they don't want you to put it down, but you put it down. Then, you know, they're coming out with uh, Google Watch, and uh, they got an Apple version of the watch again. That's a wearable technology. Okay, so there's a clear progression that the social engineers have. You get to the point where you can't live without your smartphone. And then they say, okay, I could give you the functionality of that phone in in a watch, or I could give you the functionality of that phone with glasses, or I can enhance the functionality of of that of that smartphone with the glasses. I can enhance it in some way. So the smartphone, make no mistake about it, uh, it's a bridge or a transitional technology to a wearable technology. And it's not going to end 
with everybody wearing Google Glasses or a similar device. It's not going to end with everybody wearing an iWatch or a Google Watch or a similar device. That's still that's uh, still not the still not the final game. It's, it's still not the end game. It's not the final place where they're going to push us where they want us to go. Social engineers know what they're doing with that technology. Uh, when I use that phrase that the smartphone is a bridge technology or a transitional technology, that's not. I am uh, I am not that astute. <laughs> Others have made that observation who studied this in far, far greater detail than I have. Catherine Albrecht. Catherine Albrecht wrote a book called Spy Chips. Uh, she has her own radio show. And, uh, yeah, she has years warned about the smartphones being a bridge technology to wearable technology and then beyond that. So that's it's clear there is there is an agenda for why people can't put down the smartphone. The smartphone was designed so that you're not supposed to be able to put it down. You're not supposed to be able to turn it off. They want it that way. Okay. People talk about to the Internet of Things. Okay. We use the phrase smartphone. Okay. The smartphone isn't the only device that is wired to the Internet. Not the case. And you might say, well, that's that's obvious. Okay. I'm talking about transformation, transforming our homes into an Internet of Things. Many, many people have talked about the dangers related to smart meters, you know, the smart electric meters. Okay, they claim you know, smart meters are supposed to lower the cost of utilities. They don't. But that eliminates you know, a guy coming out to the house and reading your meters. They know then in real time where you're using. And uh, is dirty electricity is clearly that there's a downside with health. And you know, some municipalities have made it uh, working with the utility commission. They made it essentially illegal to, to replace it and uh, you know, put in an old analog meter. It works fine. And we see that especially as there's more consolidation among utilities companies that are going to push the smart meters on us. Not only are there smart meters for electricity, there's smart meters for water. Where I live in the great state of North Carolina, you have a municipality like Cary. And uh, Cary's in Wake County. Cary has grown, population Cary has grown tremendously over the last 20 years. Cary has smart water meters. In other words, they know then in real time, yeah, every, the amount of water everyone's using. And another downside, uh, apart from the fact it's costing us more to use this technology that's allegedly better, a real downside in this is that, let's say, okay, fast forward, think about, think about the politics. Think about the politics. If we're in the future, not too distant future, and right now, you know, people are pretty, populist is pretty placated. You know, we've accepted our servitude pretty well. There's a lot of reasons like that. You know, the growth in prescription drugs, uh, people being addicted to television, people being addicted to, to entertainment and sports. Young know, men have been placated by sports. You know, that really, you know, diffuses, gets rid of a lot of, uh, redirects a lot of the natural male aggression to something that's meaningless. That's designed. But you get to a point in the future, let's say that there's there's some, you know, pretty big protest, Okay. And uh, the powers that be say, okay, we just, you know, we want to we wanna basically calm this down. But, we, you know, we don't want to shut off the water or electricity to a whole city. But we think, you know, we know most of the people causing this. They're within, you know, a five-block radius. And then they could just shut off the water and the electricity to those people. Or they could do it on an individual basis. They say, okay, we know 
through monitoring people on social media. And again, the NSA knows everything anyhow. I mean, there's no electronic privacy, anything. Any phone call you make, any cell call you make, any text you send, <laughs> any voicemail you leave, uh, any email you send, it's all re- it's all being recorded. Okay, And apart from the NSA, then we also got local police involved at different levels. But the NSA has kind of like the master switch and all of it. But if they just wanted, if they knew the people that were organizing protests in the future, they could just they could just easily just shut down the electricity and water. So we give up a lot more than when when the smart when the smart technology is introduced. A few years ago, when after Dave, General David Petraeus was came a director of Central Intelligence, when he was running the CIA, Wired magazine ran a piece back in March 15, 2012, and the name of it by Wired was CIA Chief Will Spy on You through your dishwasher. Yes, I didn't make that up. We'll spy on you through your dishwasher. And to quote a little bit from that piece, it said, more and more personal and household devices are connecting to the Internet from your television to your car navigation systems to your light switches. CIA Director Dave Petraeus cannot wait to spy on you through them. Earlier this month, Petraeus mused about the emergence of an Internet of Things. Okay, remember that phrase, Internet of Things, because you're going to hear it more and more. That is wired devices at a summit for InQtel. Okay, InQtel is openly the CIA's venture capital firm. Okay, if you did not know, the CIA does have a venture capital firm. It's InQtel. Transformational is an overused word. Quoting, quoting Petraeus. <clears throat> Transformational is an overused word, but I do believe it properly applies to these technologies particularly to their effect on clandestine tradecraft. All those new online devices are a treasure trove of data if you're a person of interest to the spy community. Once upon a time, spies had had to place a bug in your chandelier to hear your conversation. With the rise of the smart home, okay, remember that phrase too, smart home, you'd be sending tagged geolocated data that a spy agency can intercept in real time when you use the lighting app on your phone to adjust your living room's ambience. Items of interest will be located, identified, monitored, and remotely controlled through technologies such as radio frequency identification, it's RFID, sensor networks, tiny embedded servers, and energy harvesters, energy harvesters, all connected to the next generation internet using abundant, low cost, and high power computing, Petray said. The latter now going to cloud computing in many areas, greater and greater supercomputing, and ultimately heading to quantum computing. Quantum computing. Petraeus allowed that these household spy devices change our notions of secrecy and a prompt rethink of our notions of identity and secrecy, all of which is true if convenient for a CIA director. So it's like a lot of other things. I mean, they're not hiding the fact as far as what they want to do. And a lot of people, and I think it's it's really, really sad when people say, when they know, when they found out about, you know, the pervasive and constant illegal NSA surveillance. And I say it's illegal. I don't care how many laws Congress passed. It's not constitutional. Therefore, all of those laws are null and void. They are illegal because Constitution is still the highest law of the land. When people say, well, I have nothing tied, I don't care, uh, do you really want to live like that uh, when anything, you have a problem, albeit with or without the government five, ten years down the road? Do you want someone to be able to go back 
and not to just go through every email, every text message you ever said, anyone you ever communicated with about anything. I don't think uh, you realize the potential risk that's involved uh, when you, you uh, when we give up our, our privacy like that. But getting back to smartphones, okay. The beauty or really the, the, the tragedy of this is that we don't need, when you think about the emerging police state, okay, there's, you don't need people coming in and kicking down your door. Now that will that will always happen to some degree. There's always going to be there's always going to be some people, you know, they're going to make an example of, you know, it's going to happen. But think about it. This the the genius of the smartphone technology and as it's a bridge or a transitional technology to the wearable technology is that we're really enslaving ourselves. Okay? We're doing it. No one no one is forcing anyone to use a smartphone. No one is doing it. No one is doing it whatsoever. And when you think about that, okay, you say, well, you know, I have, I'm the end user, I control it. Okay, we've already established there's nothing private. Okay, there's no privacy. And that applies to, I mean, non, non-smartphones too, there's no privacy. But again, you have to go back to what you're trying to use that technology for. If it is if it's for something that's productive, can you really be more productive with a microcomputer in your hands or at a laptop or you're at a PC or with an iPad? And, uh, I, I think most of us know the answer. So there is social engineering. There is there is social engineering behind this. And when I talk about, again, a bridge or a transitional technology, it's not going to end with the wearable technology. It's not going to end. Okay, The goal is really an implantable biochip in the brain that they call a neural interface with the brain okay now you might say i've been watching way too much science fiction not not really not really once again open source documents reveal exactly what they're thinking what they're working on okay i could quote a piece going back to 2009 okay 2009 this is as a site called phys.org phys or phys.org phys.org okay and the name of the article was Intel wants wants a chip implant in your brain. Okay, Intel wants a chip implant in your brain. And to quote a little bit from that piece, and this goes back again to 2009, computer chip maker Intel wants to implant a brain sensing chip directly into the brains of its customers to allow them to operate computers and other devices without moving a muscle. Intel believes its customers would be willing to have a chip implanted in their brains so they could operate computers without the need for a keyboard or mouse using thoughts alone. The implant could also be used to operate devices such as cell phones, TVs, and DVDs. The chip is being developed at Intel's laboratory in Pittsburgh. It would, it would sense brain activity using technology based on fMRI, functional magnetic resonance imaging. fMRI, functional magnetic resonance imaging. The brain sensing chips are not yet available, but Intel research scientists Dean Pomerleau thinks they are close. Theoretically, different people thinking of the same word or image would have the same activity in their brains. But since no one really knows exactly how the brain works, this is not certain. Pomerleau and his team have used fMRIs to scan the brains of volunteers to see if brain patterns matching what, when they are thinking of similar things. And so far, the results look promising. Pomelaru said that with human beings and machines converging in many ways, people will want to give up the need for an interface, such as a keyboard, mouse, or remote control, 
and operate the devices using their brain waves. Pomodoro believes that sometime within the next decade or so, again, this is written in 2009, people will be more committed to the idea of the brain implants. Pomodoro LaRue said a headset incorporating brain testing technology to operate a computer is close, and the next step is to develop the tiny brain implant, which would be much less cumbersome for the user. And they quoted Associate Professor Charles Higgins in the University of Arizona. He said, people will be using hybrid computers using a combination of living tissue and technology within 10 to 15 years. That, that was his thought. So, yeah, we, we could talk, too, about how much time and money has gone into this. The Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, has openly been working on this. And you have to realize when we talk about open source documents and what they revealed, they never reveal the latest technology that they have. Uh, they never do. There's a this piece, I'm uh, going to come up to a break, and we come back, I'm going to play a quick clip by Brian Williams back in 2007. Yeah, I know it was Brian Williams, but he talked about this back in 2007. And uh, we'll play that clip, and, uh, and we'll see if we can take some calls. Uh, so let's see if we go to that break now. Where are we? K-I-R-P Radio! Mr. President, members of Congress, you've been making a lot of noise about taking our guns away. But you might want to review history. 1835, Gonzales, Texas Territory. The authorities wanted to confiscate the big gun that protected that colony. You know what the people said? Come and take it. Because they were willing to fight for their freedom and their guns. So are we. Come and take it if you want it. Come and take it if you think you can. Come and take it, but I warn you. You'll have to cry it from my cold dead hands. We want the freedom that God gave us, so you best not cross that line. If you want this gun, you gotta come through us and take it. One shot at a time. Just like Gonzalez, we're keeping our guns. K-I-R-P Radio! This piece again, Brian Williams, 2007. Uh, predicts we'd all have an RFID chip, radio frequency ID, under our skins by 2017. Again, RFID, that's not the neural interface, that's not the brain chip, but he just says for tracking. In other words, if you want to use, you have an access ID system at work, you want to get into certain doors instead of carrying a card, just get a little chip and you could open up that door. It has a lot of other applications. Special coverage here tonight, life in the U.S. in 10 years' time. By that time, there may be all kinds of new ways to safeguard and identify all those things that make each of us unique, our faces, even our fingerprints, even our eyes. Here now with more on the future of technology, NBC's Tom Costello. The year is 2017. You're rushed to a hospital, unconscious with no ID or medical history, but thanks to a microchip under your skin, it's all there. Science fiction 20 years ago, but a biometric reality today. 
the technology is based on answering one simple question. Am I who I say I am? Already, fingerprints and iris scans verify passenger identities at airports. Within 10 years, that technology may be even more widespread. And look for more complex facial recognition programs that scan a crowd of thousands looking for a single terrorist. Today's facial recognition software starts with the eyes, then it maps out the contours of the face and compares that against a database of millions, a database that's growing by the day. What's next? At the University of Bath in England, researchers predict big changes for consumers. I think it is possible to free us completely of our wallets and keys using biometric technology, if that's what people want in 10 years' time. In fact, it's already here. The latest home security locks use fingerprints to control deadbolts. And at the Jewel Osco grocery store in Chicago, some customers pay using their fingerprints. No paper or plastic. You don't really need anything other than your hand, and you already got that with you. So will future department stores scan our irises, like in the movie Minority Report, then offer products catered to who we are? Hello, Mr. Yakamoto. Welcome back to The Gap. Experts say that technology is here now. The challenge is to safeguard our privacy in a brave new world. Tom Costello, NBC News, Alexandria, Virginia. So that was in 27. He said 10 years. Recently, uh, Intel said in October 2013 they would have a neural implant. They would have a brain chip by 2020. But let me see if I can take a call now. Hello, you are on the air. I guess I did not take that call. Yeah, Intel, Intel again, as recently as in 2013, said they'd have they'd have the neural implant by 2020. That's they said. Michael Snyder had wrote a piece: a chip in the head, brain brain implants will be connecting people to the internet by the year 2020. Now, there's a lot of ways there's a lot of ways you could look at that as far as you know what a uh, <laughs> the downside, I think, is clear, regardless of whatever motivation, whatever upside, whatever upside there would be. Uh, the downside is really clear. Think about it: if you took a device into your brain that connected you to the internet, okay. Right now, we know with PCs, okay, we know with any any device connected to the internet, particularly, I mean, computers, you get you can get malware. And you can get viruses, all right? So what would make you think if you had your very brain interfaced with the Internet, it, you know, nothing, nothing would happen uh, that wouldn't be good? Hello, you are on the air. I thought he was. Maybe not. Technology. I'm still not going to get, still not going to get the brain shift though to figure out how this works.
so Snyder writes that piece uh, about about brain shifts. Then he writes that in October 2013. So when you hear this too about the brain implants, whenever they roll this out, they always talk about some positive medical benefits. Okay, and some of the positive benefits would be you know, someone, for example, was hearing impaired. They'd say, well, then what you should do. Uh, you give them the ability to you know, put that brain device in, and they could hear. So, you know, why would anyone be against that? And of course, you know, that application—that's a positive—that's a positive application. Same thing with vision. Someone is completely or partially blind. They get a brain chip. They're able to see. Of course, that's a positive application. But those applications that they focus on—that's not—that's not the end game. I mean, that, that's not the purpose of this technology that they're working on it, it it never was it's never just it's never just a benevolent activity it's never just some benevolent some benevolent things that they can do there's always a bigger agenda <laughs> there's always a bigger agenda and once again when you think about the potential for this if your own think about think about this two levels not only would you be exposing yourself to malware and manipulation of your brain but they're talking about again this this concept of transhumanism. Okay, transhumanism, when the machines, all right, technology will merge with people. And I wish again that was science fiction. There's people like Ray Kurzweil, who among other places works for Google, and yeah, he truly believes in this philosophy of transhumanism that they really want to transform human life. They want to merge the machines with the machines and they think they're going to live forever. Okay, they're talking about immortality. And yeah, coming from my perspective as as a Christian, I believe the Bible, they're really they're trying to make themselves gods. Uh Kurzweil takes, I think, uh two hundred supplements a day. He's trying to extend his life naturally, getting to that point where something will happen that his consciousness will then be able to be transformed somewhere in or with the machine and that he would live forever. I don't think that's going to happen. Brandon Brandon Turberville is a, he's a researcher. He runs activistpost.com. It's a great site, activistpost.com, and he has a piece up there. He po- he posted this this uh, this past Wednesday, the 22nd. He said the coming brain chip, the coming brain chip, and it's a lot of good information in that piece. He starts out and he talked about the concept that we already do have the idea we already do have biometrics. And that's true. I mean, biometrics are there. It's a matter of the expansion of the biometrics. The social engineers get people, they get us used to accepting things. So if you could get someone used towards uh, yeah, a little RFID chip in their hand to open up a door, okay, well then, you know, we're, what's the next phase? Okay, you, you use that chip then instead of instead of a debit card takes it to another level so then you share financial data on that chip again remember if cash is gone uh, even without a chip if cash is gone you know we're at we're further at the mercy of the banks for someone to control whatever you buy and sell okay because someone someone could just shut you down someone can turn off your account but this piece by Turberville he talks about uh, the, uh, one one researcher said, okay, in the University of Calgary, they improved upon current commercially available biometric ID technologies to the point of creating a form of artificial intelligence capable of making decisions regarding biometric information received from a variety of different sources. Okay, so 
the technology is never going to go backwards. It's not going to stop. Uh, it's just a matter of it going forward. And this combined with artificial intelligence, uh, yeah, the the implications are not good. Okay, the implications aren't good. They've already they've already been places that have used uh, fingerprints. Uh, they've used retinal scans. There's one company in is uh is in Sweden. There's one company in Sweden, and they offered microchips, RFID chips, under the employee skin for access for access to different parts of the building. And that piece is about two minutes. This is pretty interesting when you hear about the advocate, how he describes what was how he describes this being used. Here in the centre of Stockholm, a new high-tech office building is open to welcome startups and established companies like Google and Microsoft. But there's one key thing about the technology of the building, and that is that people who work here can be chipped to gain entry to the building and various services. Uh, I've just been chipped myself. Uh, it's not a painless process, but it doesn't last too long, not too difficult. Minor surgical procedure, which basically involves uh, a little chip the size of, I suppose, of a grain of rice being inserted under your skin, uh, and you can then go off and have it programmed and then do various things inside the building. Let's go and have a look. And here's Hannah Schoblad, who is uh, in charge of this whole chipping operation in the building. Now, you've been chipped yourself. Where's your chip? Yeah, I have a chip right here, which I use to access the entire office. So let's see if we can get into this particular This is uh, how I do it. Okay. No need for passcode. And we're in. So, what else can you use this for? Is it just to get in entry the doors? Because that would seem a fairly simple thing. Absolutely not. I mean, with this technology, I interact with all kinds of devices all around us. It can be normally my smartphone. I unlock my smartphone, my computer, I unlock my bike. Uh, all kinds of things that are now part of the greater connected Internet of Things. But inside this building, you'll be able to do what else? What other thing will you be able to do? Oh, I open the front door. I open various uh, office rooms. Uh, I open the copy machine so that I can log into it. So you can print just by putting your hand against the printer. Exactly. It, so it's instead of having some clumsy device in my pocket, I just put my hand on the reader. If we help show people that this is really not that complicated, it's making our lives easier, I think people will actually welcome this uh, tool, tool to make their lives easier. And is there a sort of wider philosophy behind it? Uh, we uh, are early adopters of this technology. We experiment with it. We learn it how it works, because I think that there might be a day when uh, the tax man or the big corporates uh, will come to us and say, hey, try this chip, try this implant, and then we, the biohackers, who understand this technology, we will be able to question their proposals. So at the end, you know, he tries to say, if there's an expansion, if there's an expansion by government, then well, yeah, the hackers could, the hackers would be able to save the day. I'm not, I'm not sure that once it's implemented, if it was implemented on a wide scale, uh, it'd be hard, be very hard to roll it back. Similar again to look at the use of the smartphones. Most people, if you're using a smartphone, uh, how many people were then just going to give it up for any reason? They're rolling out the biometrics, and again, think about the progression, the smartphone, transitional bridge technology to wearable technology, to ultimately what they want is this implantable biochip.
And again, I'd never, I wouldn't deny the positive medical applications, but that's not where the research is going when, when you have this massive amount of emphasis and uh, research and investment into the biochip. It's not for medical. It's not for positive, you know, benign, you know, altruistic medical applications. That's not what they're talking about. You know, Google, for all intents and purposes, I mean, they're, that's like part of, of <laughs> that's part of the federal government, and they're on board with this. Uh, they're completely on board with this. These systems, these systems are out there, and some of them are gaining control, gaining access to your DNA, your DNA. In that piece by Tuberville, he talked about how, believe it or not, there's a there's there's a a, a, a device called a Masani chip, M-A-S-N-I Masani chip, and uh, it is it is controlled by the Grand Lodge of the Freemasons. Okay, this stuff you can't make up. Okay, he quotes one article. It begins on the surface as a child identification project in case your loved ones are ever to be horrendously abducted. Parents are familiar with at-home at-home kits to record their kids' vital information for protection against the greatest of all fears to be inflicted on a family. Normally, height, weight, hair, and eye color are recorded along with a set of fingerprints and hopefully a current photograph. It's just the good folks at your local Masonic Lodge saw fit to take things further. With advances in technology, they begin to offer digital fingerprints, digital imaging, digital video, dental impressions, and DNA mouse swaps. This data processing is managed by their proprietary software that's designed to be compatible with local and national law enforcement. This is, after all, a campaign created by police in the Brotherhood, regardless of its private funding. Yet for all the conflation between the Masonic program with government involvement, the truth is that the program is entirely private, totally belongs to the Freemasons. And Masonic ship states that in addition to recording the child's data, the children's data themselves, it will provide its own healthcare professionals to collect the DNA samples at whatever event the DNA gathering is scheduled to occur. <laughs> uh, just one, you know, one, one little program that's going on. But again, going back towards going, everything again is pointing towards that idea of an implantable, an implantable biochip, a neural, a neural implant. And a lot of people, you have to think, if people had the option tomorrow, if you said, okay, I'll give you something, I'll give you something whereby you can access the internet, you can access your computer, not just the internet, but you access your computer, you never have to use a keyboard again. How many people would say, yeah, go ahead, go ahead and chip me? Some detractors, some detractors, when these stories have come out, some detractors have said, yeah, it's all, uh, it's, it's all basically theoretical. The technology doesn't exist. The RFID technology is well out there, remember. Yes, I played the piece from uh, Sweden. The RFID, the RFID technology for people to get a little you know, implant the size of a grain of rice, that's been out there for years. Okay, 160 Mexican government employees, they were implanted with microchips for security reasons. Uh, this stuff has been going on for a long time. But when we get to the neural implant again, that uh, I would say it probably it probably is out there. But yeah, you know, no one no one is saying if that has been used yet. Certainly, yeah, you know, a lot of time and effort, a lot of money has gone into developing that technology. Have have they actually have they beta tested on people? I'd say it's probably been done in the military. Again, can't prove that yet. Can't prove that. But certainly, 
if Intel is selling is saying now it'll be available to the public in 2020, you'd have to guess uh, before it's gone to the public they have used it on other people in different places. We go back again to the philosophy about this and this idea of a singularity, a singularity. People like Ray Kurzweil that are openly promoting the philosophy of transhumanism. Okay, they're talking about there's going to be a point where people, where computers will develop so quickly that artificial intelligence will really, in one sense, it will merge with us, and that will change humanity forever. I don't think that's going to happen. In other words, I think, you know, revealing what I believe about God, man, and the universe, believing scripture, uh, God's not going to let humanity be changed and merged with machines. That's not going to happen. But these people, I'd say, that are psychopaths, uh, they are trying. They are trying. H- how do you define? How do they define this idea of singularity? Kurzweil and others. They say the moment when technological change becomes so rapid and profound, it represents a rupture in the fabric of human history. Simply put, singularity is a moment when man-machine merge to create a new type of human. A singular entity it contains property of both machines and humans, and uh, it's out there again. Uh, Kurzweil has written about it extensively. There's, he's made a documentary. Uh, there, there's one article: the singularity movement, immortality, removing the ghost in the machine. Uh, they don't deny it. <laughs> singularity University is actually this is a program that's offered by NASA. Okay, it offers interdisciplinary courses for both executives and graduate students. NASA's on board. NASA's part of that, as is Google. Again, that's the Kurzweil connection. Uh, Ten years ago, U.S. Science Foundation, National Science Foundation, predicted predicted networked enhanced telepathy. In other words, sending thoughts over the internet would be practical practical by the 2020s. And you go back to Intel's prediction that by 2020 there would be that neural implant, that brain chip. So will it happen? I don't know. That's what they're saying. Saying thanks to neuroscientists at the University of California, California, they seem to be on schedule. Last September, they asked volunteers to watch Hollywood film trailers and then reconstructed the clips by scanning the subject's brain activity. And that article goes on to say, last week the scientists boldly went further still. They charred the electrical activity in the brains of volunteers who were listening to human speech and then they fed the results to computers, which translate the signals back into language. The technique remains crude, uh, and so far uh, has made out only five distinct words, but humanity's crossed a threshold. Okay. So they're talking about, again, the ability to control brain function by computers. I thought that that, that has been available at some level for years. Uh, some people talked about an experiment they had done back in the 60s, and it was just with a bull, but they were able to control a bull's movements just yeah, remotely through through yeah, through wiring his brain. It was done. Of course, our brain is more complex, but it's not it's not science fiction. Uh, really interesting thing they said by the decade by the second decade of the twentieth century, we've become used to organs grown in laboratories, genetic surgery and designer babies. In 2002, medical researchers used enzymes and DNA to build the first molecular computers. And the 2004 improved versions are being injected into people's veins to fight cancer. 
by 2020, we may be able to put even smarter nanocomputers into our brains to speed up synaptic links, give ourselves perfect memory, and perhaps cure dementia. Okay, they always throw out the medical application. If nanocomputers implanted in our brains would indeed increase these functions of the human brain, making them possible, making then possible the furthering of other related technological and other biotechnological advances. And it is realistic to believe, as many in the singularity movement do, that the human being, as we know it, will cease to exist. The old man will rep- be replaced by the new. And in a very real sense to these people, uh, this is a uh, this is a religion. I mean, they're talking about they're talking about a new species, and when they talk about that, that idea of a new species again, this goes back. This goes back to something I've discussed on this show. Many people have discussed, and that's this: that when there there is a movement has been around for at least a hundred years of eugenics. Okay, to improve, you know, the idea that they can improve humanity through. Yeah, through basically changing the you know, how people are and really the number of people that are there. It's been around 100 years. People don't like to talk about the fact that the Nazis, with their ideas of eugenics, and they talked about you know racial cleansing. That those were American ideas that they just applied. That's something they don't teach in the history textbooks. So one way philosophically to look at this idea of transhumanism is that it's just another version of eugenics. Yet they're saying they're going to take to the next level if they're going to a certain select uh, group of people would then merge with machines to change what really what constitutes uh, what constitutes humanity. A lot of interesting things uh, can be quoted as far as when you connect the dots, how much the technology has advanced. People have talked about how quickly the internet the internet was the most rapidly used most rapidly expanded consumer technology. You look in the history, everything else, radio, TV, nothing expanded as quickly and as rapidly as the Internet. And you think about how quickly computers, how, how have computers developed? Okay, so this is really interesting to say, where have computers gone? First computer I know of, I think, that I know of, was developed during World War II. Okay. Since the 60s, computer chips have been doubling their speed and having their... and uh, halving their cost, cutting their cost in half every 18 months or so. If the trend continues, the inventor and predictor Ray Kurzweil has pointed out that by 2029, we will have computers powerful enough to run programs reproducing the 10,000 trillion electrical signals that flash around your skull every second. Okay, it's at 2029. They will also have enough memory to store the 10 trillion recollections that make you who you are. And then... And they will also be powerful enough to scan neuron, neuron by neuron every contour and wrinkle in your brain. What this means is that if the trend of the past 50 years continue, in 17 years' time, we'll be able to upload an electronic replica of your mind onto a machine. Okay, and I'd stop right there. Let's say they could do that. Let's say, let's say the computers did do advance to that point. And again, some, some people talk about quantum technology and when will we reach, they're talking really full AI, when will full artificial intelligence take place? In other words, when it gets to the point where computers are autonomously creating other computers. Okay, But let's say it gets to that point where computers are that powerful and they could upload upload an electronic replica of your mind onto a machine. That's not you. Okay, <laughs> that's That's not a human being. <laughs> But these people, again, because 
I would use I would use biblical where it says demonic, they think they're going to have immortality on their own terms. And this isn't you know, you read the Bible, this is nothing new. This is just another attempt of man attempting to make himself God. Kurzweil thinks there'd be two of you, one of flesh one of flesh and blood animal, the other inside a computer circuits. But obviously if you have life that yeah, you know, there's going to be a terminal point. Yeah, it's pointed unto men wants to die and then the judgment. Kurzweil doesn't the actually he wants to make himself God, so he ignores that. Thinks he's gonna live forever. Kurzweil thinks that the trend holds fast beyond that. He he takes a step further as far as not just individuals having their identities in a computer. He says if the trend holds fast beyond that, by twenty forty five we will have a computer that's powerful enough to host every one of the eight billion minds on Earth. Carbon and silicon-based intelligence will merge to form a single global consciousness. This is part of of their religion, the singularity. If they believe machines get to that point, if tech, if the computers advance that quickly, then they could merge with people, and then everyone would be merged together, kind of like a hive, uh, a hive, a hive uh, entity. So there really, there really wouldn't be any individuals anymore. So when you see when you see a movie like The Matrix, okay, you could argue, is that really predictive programming where people were living in uh, in a cyber consciousness? They were living they were, they were living in a fake reality that they were but they interacted with one another together. So was that predictive programming? Uh, I don't know, but it's to me it's still amazing that these people, the Kurzweil and others. They want this to occur. In other words, this is this is what they are working on. They want to merge. They want to change what it means to be a human. They want to merge with with the machines. A lot of research, again, uh, a lot of research has gone on with this. And again, you can say, of course, we're not primates. We're not monkeys. But they, they've done they've done this weird stuff. Uh, They've been able to manipulate. They've been able to get monkeys to learn how to press a button to to send a stimulus to the brain of uh, of one of them in the colony with others to calm it down. Okay, so they, that indicates animals could be taught to control each other's behavior. Another monkey could be stimulated to extreme aggressive behavior to make intelligent attacks only on competitive members of the colony, sparing the friendly ones. And they said monkeys and cats could be triggered into sequential behavior in which one might open his mouth, turn around, walk into a corner, climb a wall, jump up and down, and return to start, repeating those mo- movements in the same order every time they're stimulated, but will modify the pattern of other animals getting away if they're threatened. So they show electrical brain stimulation doesn't simply evoke automatic responses, but reactions that become integrated into the social behavior of individuals, of the individual's own personality or temperament. So they do these on animals, but again, they're doing them on animals because they, at the end game, always, it's it's what they want to apply, sad to say, to human beings. It's what they want to do. And again, when I say this is a religion to these people, uh, Kurzweil wrote a book, Age of Spiritual Machines, Okay, so they they don't want high mean this is we talk about the idea of a presupposition, it's a belief, it's a core belief you have you can't prove. I mean, this is this is his core belief, I mean, uh that he believes that people could merge with the machines and uh that would become part of the singularity and this would be how they would they would attain immortality. Piece came out last week where an Italian surgeon an Italian surgeon believes he's going to do the first 
head transplant. Yes, he believes he's, there's a Russian patient whose body's decaying, and he believes he's going to be able to transplant his head on a body. I don't know what body they're going to use, but that that uh, that Italian surgeon says this is this is going to be immortality. So, don't know if he's a transhumanist, but it's extremely dangerous when man gets to the point where they believe that on their own they could live forever apart from God they could achieve they could achieve immortality <laughs> that is that is a religion I would say based upon my beliefs in the bible that is that is demonic <laughs> that that is that is demonic that people man not just living independent of God but man thinking that he could li- he could live he gain immortality apart from God uh you go back to the Garden of Eden. I'm a young earth creationist. I believe in a literal Adam. I believe in a literal Eve. I believe in a literal 24-hour creation. Satan approached Eve and said, if you eat the fruit, then you will have the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, And there was some truth to that. She did. She sinned. Adam sinned. And they did understand good and evil, but not from God's perspective, but from Satan's perspective. <laughs> it was fallen. So... When this is presented, uh, when people come up and they talk about, they talk about brain chips, they talk about merging with machines, they talk about transhumanism, they talk about singularity. Uh, they're revealing what they believe about God, and, uh, and I would reject that, and uh, I would urge you to reject that. Ultimately, ultimately, regardless of how you use technology, we are spiritual beings. I believe we're all created in the image and likeness of God. And the only thing that's going to make us immortal is when we accept who we are in God's eyes. We realize we're sinners, understand we violate God's laws, we deserve judgment, we deserve eternal condemnation. Once you realize what that problem is, that even though you're creating the image and likeness of God, yet you can't, you can't gain his favor, then you're in a point where you can understand what happened on the cross, who Christ was. Up until that point, again, everything else. Everything else is just a vain effort. Whether you're Ray Kurzweil attempting to achieve immortality with the singularity, or uh, whether you just go on life and uh, just think you can make it on your own, we're all going to face that day. We're all going to face that day of judgment. I appreciate everyone listening, and I uh, please forgive me for uh, not using the technology enough. I had some callers. Please, those callers, please forgive me for not being able to take those calls. But uh, thank you, thank you for uh, for those who did call. Thank you for everyone who did listen. And uh, Pudgy will be back next week. Thank you. K I R P Radio.